Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nation and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This may be news to you. Jesus Christ wins. Why do I say that? So much of the church is totally wrong about the end of the world. What is going to happen in the future? Now, I say that humbly, and I say that as one who loves the church. Ministers are supposed to be those who are attending to the bride. We look at Paul and his admonitions to the people in the New Testament, and he says, I'm involved with you that I might present you a pure and chaste virgin to Christ. That is, there is an image of the people of God, the bride of Christ, as one who is being married to Christ. And that marriage, that, pre- that preparation work of apostles, prophets, teachers, shepherds, pastors, being another term for shepherds, is a preparation and a maturing and an adoration of the bride with the very tools that God has given his ministers. And so whenever you hear a critique of the church in her teaching, it's not done to malign the bride. It's done to deliver her up to purity, to free her from the things that she is entangled with today. Now, obviously, there is one true church, and that church is holy, and that activity is a sanctifying activity that the Holy Spirit is bringing about. Nevertheless, as a people who have covenanted together, as a people who are uh, corporately the bride of Christ, along as a part of the larger bride throughout the world, it is right for us to divorce ourselves from and to cut off ties to paradigms that limit our understanding of who the bridegroom is. As you go through the preparation for a wedding, you get to know your fiance all the more until the day of. And of course that continues into the marriage. And so the analogy breaks down, but I'm convinced that God is at work giving his bride an understanding of where she's going. The preparation that the bride takes throughout her days of getting ready up to the wedding is totally dependent on her vision of what's happening in the future. Bill Johnson is famously quoted by lots of other teachers and preachers as saying there's a very big difference between getting rescued right by helicopter, that, that was the analogy earlier today in the Sunday school hour, versus getting picked up to go to your wedding, right? Think of the difference between EMTs showing up and the fire you know, truck putting out the fires and pulling out your, this corpse that's been destroyed by smoke and fire. That's one vision of what's happening. The other vision is you're just getting picked up in a limo and you're ready to go, <laughs> right? Very big difference. And so it really matters what we think about the end of time, the end of history, where this is all going. What is Christ doing on the earth is a question that you are constantly either answering rightly or simply putting off or answering wrongly. And so your understanding of your life in 
view of that is deeply important. That's really what the season of Advent is. There's a twofold emphasis in this season. One, the first emphasis that takes the first two weeks or so of the four-week period is really a vision of what is what are we waiting for in Christ's return? That is his literal second coming, and how in this in the last two weeks of Advent, how that anticipation, that faithful waiting, is mirrored in the experience of Israel as she waited for her Messiah. Now, when I say that, I mean the faithful remnant within Israel as she waited for her Messiah. Um, and so, this is really important for us, even as we have just closed the last calendar year and are now beginning a new calendar year, we do it in anticipation of the culmination of all things in Jesus Christ. But that culmination is not, as is so often depicted today, uh, like what you might see in the Left Behind series. Uh, Please don't read that book. And if you've seen the movie, I would invite you to rethink your understand it it simply is a total uh, distraction from the mission that Christ is on and that he's trying to invite his people to join in with so with that in mind i want to look at the prophecy that isaiah received and we're going to first look at the context for for this prophecy we saw this last week how the context of the prophecy is so important And how if you do not understand the deep sin, iniquity, and judgment that was coming, these wonderful prophecies of goodness and restoration, kind of, they don't sound right. They're off key, if you will. So after looking at the sinfulness of of Israel and Judah, which is the context for this prophecy, that it is a diamond on a backdrop of black felt, if you will, after looking at that, I want to look at this term, latter days. And what this means, what it, what it means for the latter days to come to pass, and how it is that the house of the Lord will be established, this mountain being established. I want to look at what the nations will do in response to the establishing of the mountain and the going forth of the law from Jerusalem, which is essentially one and the same as we'll see here. And then I want to look at Christ's righteous rulership over the nations, how he rules over the nations so as to bless them and to bring them into his fold or to judge them for their persistent rebellion against his ways. And then finally, I want to look at applications of this passage. That is to say, this, this passage presents a vision of the kingdom of God. And that vision of the kingdom of God is a vision that takes place even as the Lord is established on his throne. It is, not waiting, you are, it is not waiting for a time for Christ to return for this to be fulfilled. It is being fulfilled, it has been set in motion, and it will culminate in his return. If you've ever heard great uh, classical music, one of, the, one of the techniques that a classical uh, piece will often do is what they call a crescendo. And the crescendo is the sustaining of a chord, but not just the sustaining of the chord, the invigorating of that same chord which is sustained so that it is louder and louder. And sometimes the, the composer instructs that additional notes be, be uh, begun to play at the same time such that the chord not only increases in volume, but in glory and in beauty. This is what a crescendo is. This is what I believe Isaiah saw according to the Spirit of God, and that is a vision of the restorative work that Christ is doing in the earth today. And so if that is the vision, which I believe it is, that radically shapes how we can sow, plant, build, invest, die to self, and, and work toward a future vision. I'm convinced that if you think everything is falling apart, you will not you will not work as, as, same, as the same uh, quality as one who is, is convinced that Christ will be victorious over time. That what we see in our world today is the death rattles of the serpent. That he is uh, just simply, he has is, he is taken a fatal wound that Christ at, at the cross dealt a fatal blow. Satan was defeated. And everything evil that we see in our world today is merely a reverberation and echo of his evil. That Satan has been bound and Christ is giving victory to his church. So with that in mind, let's get started with the context. At the beginning of Isaiah, Yahweh calls 
heaven and earth to testify against the sin of his people. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, he literally calls heaven and earth to be the two witnesses in his trial or his accusation against his people. If you remember that pattern in scripture that two or three witnesses are required to establish a matter, it's significant. What this means is that the sin of the people of God, the sin of Judah, the sin of Israel, was so large that the entire world has taken notice. Think about this. Whatever you've done in your life, any particular sin, it has a small scope. Now that sin is always done before God, but the consequences may be very small. If you steal a candy bar and your parents find it out, you may have to turn it over to the store manager and you might get spanked, you should get spanked, when you get home. This is is a small sin. There's a few people who know about this. In God calling heaven and earth to testify against the people of Israel, he's saying that their sin is so large that the entire world has taken notice. Literally, the cosmos itself, things that as Greek-minded people Uh, we think have no viewing capabilities, he calls them to take notice and to answer uh, in, in this trial, in this court of his people. Literally, the creation has been corrupted through the sin of God's people. And so her idolatry, that is the people of Israel, their idolatry in going after gods is compared to harlotry. Idolatry and adultery are different words, but in the spiritual sense, Yahweh compares them to be the same thing. Remember how we talked about the bride of Christ being united to Christ? Likewise, even in the Old Testament, the people of God were called the bride of Yahweh. Your maker is your husband. And so the creator God is also the covenant faithful God who stole a bride out of Egypt, who delivered her out of Egypt, rescued her from Egypt, prepared her, and put her in a wonderful, gracious context of the promised land. And yet, at this point in the scripture, Jerusalem has become so evil that she is called the name Sodom. If you do not remember why that's important, in the city of Sodom, three people, three beings come to visit Abraham. One stays with Abraham and two go on to the city of Sodom. And at the city of Sodom, these two go into the house of Lot. And the entire city comes to the door of Lot's house and breaks down the door, attempting to rape these two angelic messengers. That is the wickedness that is in view of the city of Sodom. And so for Jerusalem to be called this, For Jerusalem to be named by the term Sodom in this first chapter, that right there is so informative as to this context. If you just hear Isaiah 2 verse 2, that this is going to to take place, but you don't hear that first she's going to be destroyed, then it doesn't really make any sense. It's not really anything great. It just means that, well, God's going to reward the people for their faithfulness. But it's actually the case that God is going to judge them, and yet in his judgment, he will remember mercy. So this is the context for Isaiah's promise of healing, which occurs in the latter days. And these latter days are not latter to us. They were latter to Isaiah, the judgment having not yet been completed, but they are former to us. They have been inaugurated, if you will. The mountain of the house of the Lord will literally lie in ruins. This was where the temple was established in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, The city of Jerusalem, like many cities in Israel, was established on a hill at the foot of a mountain, and the temple or the, the temple complex land was actually really on the mountain itself. It wasn't at the peak, it wasn't at the pinnacle, but it was uh, considered to be on the mountain. And so for Isaiah to prophesy that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established is to understand that God will bring healing after death. That is really what is so important about the context because this is giving us a view of God as the God of resurrection. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. The Hebrews that interpreted Isaiah, those, that is the Hebrew rabbis who were involved in interpreting this passage all the while waiting for their Messiah, understood the latter days to be a term of the time period of the Messiah's arrival. 
we are waiting for our Messiah's return, they rightly understood this as a prophecy about his first arrival. And so the latter days, because we've been so uh, used to being imbibed with this end times nonsense that sees everything getting worse and Christ ultimately will snatch a few out and miss most of his redemptive uh, arc, uh, when we hear latter days, we think like we think into the future and we see like this great fireball coming on the earth after an antichrist who arises and the people of God are taken up in the air. But that's not at all what Isaiah is seeing here. And that's not at all what Isaiah is referring to in the term, the latter days. The latter days is a term that specifically speaks about the end of of that epoch of time. And by epoch, I mean that time period of Israel as a people that was identical to a nation state. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying that those who were in the, in the natural citizenry of Israel were necessarily redeemed Christians, if you will. It isn't as if back then they did the works of the law and were justified, and now we have to believe in Christ. Old Testament, New Testament, if you're familiar with the teaching in this church, you know clearly, Old Testament, New Testament, those who are saved are saved in faith of the promise being fulfilled. There is, however, a very significant change in the administration of the covenants between Old Testament and New. At once, you had to be part of a nation, a people group. Aliens or strangers could come into the people group and join, but now it is no longer based on an ethnicity. The, the fullness has come. And so it is not as if that there wasn't a change. There was a change. There was an end to this time period. That is what it means about the latter days. And this is what the New Testament says throughout it. It says that the latter days have come. These latter days were inaugurated in the coming of the Messiah. If you remember back to our time in the book of Hebrews, the very first chapter, we saw that God spoke through many ways and many times through different prophets and messengers. But now in these last days, he has spoken through his son. Past tense, already taken place, the writer of Hebrews is writing a summary statement of the mission of Christ as the culmination, the final word of revelation from the Father. He has spoken in these last days through his Son. And so you and I, we live in this time period called the latter days. Before his ascension, before the establishing of the mountain really takes place, Christ commands his disciples to wait in the city of Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was sent. He commands them to wait in the city of Jerusalem, and this is really the foundation for the establishing of the house that Isaiah sees. After the coming of the Spirit, the apostles who are in the upper room speak with tongues and are proclaimed and proclaim the victory of God. If you read Acts 2, you see that they are declaring the mighty things of God or the mighty deeds of God. They are worshiping God in the Spirit after the Spirit has descended upon them. Now, I think the imagery of them being in the upper room is mightily important, but that's a subtle implication. So Peter stands up and he defends their worship of God at the accusation that they are drunk, and he says that this was to fulfill what Joel spoke about in the latter days, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And so Peter, along with the writer of Hebrews, say and speak together, they speak in concert saying that the church is established and this time is the time that the prophet, prophet spoke about concerning the latter days of the Messiah. This term, the mountain of the house of the Lord, therefore, is understood to be a parable or an image of or a term for the kingdom of God as mediated by the church of God. That is to say, the kingdom of God encompasses far more than just the official office and membership of the church throughout the world, and yet the church is the agent through which the kingdom of God comes and is spread and is established and protected. Christ has, therefore, established his people as the house of the Lord. This imagery, the mountain of the house of the Lord, speaks of the kingdom on which the church sits or is centered. So we have a mountain, that is the mountain of the Lord, and there is a house on that mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord. You see that imagery there? 
people on the recording have no idea what I've done with my hands. Oh well. The mountain is not established, therefore, through mere human effort. Isaiah sees something that is totally perplexing. The house of God has just been condemned. It's, been, it's, it's as if, if you drive around our city and you're looking for homes to rehab, you'll often come across these homes that are boarded up, that they have writing on them. A, a lot of times you'll see these green stickers. Whenever I see those, I just keep on driving. Those green stickers often, it'll say on there that the house has been condemned until it is inspected because there's mold in the house and the mold has taken over. It has to be either professionally removed or the house has to be turned down, torn down. That is what's gone on in Isaiah 1. There has been a judgment pronounced over the house and yet here Isaiah sees the house is restored again. So we know clearly that this is not done through human agency or effort, but can only be done by the God of resurrection. That is, Christ in his ministry came to restore the house of the Lord. Now, in restoring the house of the Lord, he does not restore what the shadow was, that is, the physical temple, but rather restores what was always God's intention and desire to bring about in the culmination of time, that is, he would dwell amongst a people this mountain house, therefore, is Christ, is built in Christ. He is the foundation of it. And those which are built upon him are called living stones. These living stones are laid by the ministers of Christ. I want to help you understand that you cannot come to Christ on your own. You do not come to Christ through your own agency or activity. Even if you just pick up a Bible on the street or in a bookstore or what have you and are converted through the reading of it, which is very rare, even if that happens, you are the recipient of thousands of years of the restore, restoration and, and care of the texts of scripture. You are the recipient of hundreds of people in the nations in Europe who died for the translation of that text into what they called the vulgar tongue, the common tongue, of mere mortals. You, you are the recipient of a company that invested millions of dollars to produce Bibles and to transmit them. You are the recipient of the grace of the economy of the church which allowed the bookstore to exist. You only come to Christ through the agency of his people. Of course, the Holy Spirit is at work in your conversion, but God does not work outside his people ever. I'm very suspicious. of You hear these stories of people in Muslim countries who are having these dreams of Christ and get converted. I'm okay with that. I don't think God can't do that. It just doesn't seem to be the way that he's always worked in history. I'm not trying to limit God's activity, but I, what I am trying to say is, if, that, if you hear that story that you know a Muslim came to Christ because he had a dream, if you hear that and in any degree that lessens your understanding of the need for us to go, then that dream has done something wrong in your interpretation of it. That does not set aside or excuse your responsibility to go. And so we understand the mountain of the house of the Lord is being established through the agency and ministry of Christ, working through his spirit, working for his people. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the foundation of the house is Christ, and I as a master builder built upon it. It's very important that ministers of the gospel understand that their task is not some isolated activity. We're not just off doing our own thing. We are trying to build the house of God and we ought to be master builders. These who hear, that those who hear the words of Christ and do them are called those who build their house upon the rock, not their house upon the sand. If you grew up in the church, you might know that wonderful little song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man who builds his house upon the rock is the one who hears the word of Christ and does it so as to perform it. That is, through faith, he hears the word of God and by the Spirit of God, he does what the Word requires of him. That is not a work by which he merits salvation, but it is a work which proves the quality of his faith, as James says. This ministry, the act of building upon Christ, is done on Christ's behalf and by his power, and is therefore sure to come to pass. The mountain of the house of the Lord will not lie in ruins, 
The mountain of the house of the Lord will not be diminished. It will not have a small cultural impact. The mountain of the house of the Lord won't be established in North America with all the other nations lying in darkness at his return. I hear so often that people, you know, have this vision that Christ can just come back at any moment. Brothers and sisters, it is a terrible thing should Christ come back at any moment. Billions of people have never heard the name of Jesus. I long for our Lord's return. I think it's right to long for our Lord's return. But if you don't see your activity in going, either to your local community, to the nations of the earth, if you don't see the necessity of a minister of the gospel coming and explaining to wicked pagans who have no light that the light indeed has come and you bring it with you, unless you understand that, it is a woeful thing to just lackadaisically ask for the Lord's return. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord has been established. It's being established and it's growing. Those things over which the mountain of the house of the Lord is exalted are deemed to be hills, showing their lowly position and low estate. That is, that the mountain of the house of the Lord rises above and overshadows those which are called hills. And these hills signify all things which are contrary to Christ. They are empires, they are tyrants. A man by the name of Fidel Castro just passed away. Praise the Lord indeed. He was a wicked man. When I hear so many Christians who when they hear the death of a tyrant, they're like, well, you know, that was an image bearer of God. Yes, it was an image bearer of God. And he constantly murdered other people, imprisoned them, persecuted Christians, persecuted Catholics, He persecuted everyone who was a dissident of him. This is like, for the Cubans, I'm sure if you ask any Cuban who had to flee that country, I mean, I I heard but did not see, I heard reports from the Miami Herald that there's dancing in the streets right now because a tyrant has lost his power. Now, for many years, he wasn't politically active. He was very sick. Nevertheless, his death is a symbolic victory for them. It's right to understand that God is not wrong to judge those who persistently harden their hearts and reject his righteousness. Nevertheless, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He desires that men would turn, and the condemnation of sin is that men do not turn. Even though many would come and appeal and warn them and severely severely show them that they are awaiting faith, uh, the right expectation of judgment. Nevertheless, God will have victory over them. I think it's interesting that when you think of what the Roman Christians were going through, that is at the time of the Roman Empire, they were intimately aware with the names of the generals and the governors and the emperors. One of the things that I find interesting is just in the way that God works throughout time, that over time, God is continually bringing to nothing the memory of wicked tyrants all the time. No one goes around saying, Hail Caesar. And that will continue to happen throughout time. So, just as this healing river which flows out from the throne of God, which is, of course, a symbol of the Holy Spirit as mediated through the church, Just as that river goes into the world and flows out to be for the healing of the nations, so also the nations stream back into the house of the Lord. They follow the river, they tack it back up so as to come to the seat of the throne. One of the things that's interesting is as you begin to re-examine your eschatology, many people think, well, oh wait, that river comes in the heavenly Jerusalem. There's an interesting phrase, though, that the river is surrounded by trees who bear fruit in each season, and the trees have something that shows you a little bit of an indication of when does that heavenly city come down. It says, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Well, if the city only comes down in the second coming, what's this business of healing of the nations? Christ has returned. The culmination has happened. There's no more sin to, do, to be removed. But if you understand it in the right context, we see that the fruit of these trees is really the gifts through the church for the healing of the nations. Just as that river flows out, so all the nations shall flow back 
to the source of that river. It says, many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Many of the peoples of the earth, upon the preaching of the whole counsel of God, are converted, and in that conversion, they then bear fruit in keeping with repentance, so as to wish to do that which the Lord has said. This proves that the gospel is an effectual call. That is to say that the gospel, when it is faithfully preaches, accomplishes the work that God sends it forth and intends it to accomplish. They wish to learn of his ways in order to walk in his paths. Look at this again. They want to go to the house of God that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It's not simply just to be informed about God. It's to be informed about God's ways so as to change the way that they walk. The peoples of the earth do not come to the mountain of their own accord, but only go out in a response to the word of the Lord. Look at this word for. It's a very important uh, understanding of scripture that a prophet or an apostle, when they're writing a letter or writing a prophecy, there will often be one of these connecting words that, although it's small, is deeply important. Why, therefore, do the people, the nations, stream to the house of the Lord? Because, or the word for, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. The reason they know where to go is because there is one who has gone. There is someone who goes out, declares the word of the Lord, and in that declaring, they reap a harvest. That harvest is the people's, it's the nation's. This is not a small measure or a small summary of the nations. It is a major summary of the nations. That is to say, it doesn't say many, or it doesn't say few of the nations or some of the nations. It says that the peoples will come and all the nations shall flow to it. All the nations is a very clear term. You don't need a lot of symbolic understanding or you don't have to be very good at interpreting the scriptures to understand all the nations means what it says. Though in the coming of the Magi we see a small glimpse of this, this promise reaches its initial fulfillment, not its total fulfillment, but initial fulfillment in the coming of the Spirit and on the day of Pentecost. We referred to this earlier. We talked about the fact that the, it was a little bit of a symbolic understanding that the apostles and disciples were in the upper room. And here we see nations filling the city of Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost to celebrate the giving of the law. And they're there in order to worship God and they encounter someone on this upper room declaring to them the mighty things and deeds of God. So we see, again, a small glimpse in the coming of the Magi. The Magi, Magi follow the light. They follow the light until they, return, they uh, come to the place where Christ was staying. And yet, that is just a small glimpse, not even, a total, or not even an initial fulfillment. Then we see an initial fulfillment in the day of Pentecost, and like most prophecy in the scripture, it has an initial fulfillment and a full or a complete fulfillment. That is to say, this activity of these nations streaming has already begun and is continuing. We see that devout men from every nation in Acts 2, it says devout men from every nation under heaven were in the city of Jerusalem. They come, they gather, and are baptized. This is the beginning of God's fulfillment of Christ's commission for the disciples to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel and to teach all the nations to observe that which Christ commanded. He also said in Acts 1, he said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even to the utmost parts of the earth. I want you to, if you know the map, Judea is a region in which Jerusalem is uh, contained. So they start in Jerusalem, they move to Judea and Samaria, Samaria is the northern part of the nation, and then they move out from there to the utmost parts of the earth. They're concentric circles that are ever expanding. If you were here during our time in the book of Acts, you may remember this quite clearly. This was the fulfillment of God's promise that out from Jerusalem will go forth the law and they will proclaim the Lord's word. Now, when we say that 
out from Jerusalem will go the law, we do not mean, and Isaiah does not mean, only the law in the Old Testament contained in the covenant of Moses. We also understand it to include the entire law word which Christ says. That is, the word of Christ, or the word of the Lord, as Isaiah calls it, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, is the gospel. It is not simply this division of law versus gospel. It is the word which Christ utters. In Revelation chapter 1, we see a vision of Christ, and this is a vision that John receives when he's on the island of Patmos, and he sees Christ, and out from Christ's mouth comes a two-edged sword. This two-edged sword is kind of a mirror of what we see in Psalm 2, the rod of iron by which he rules the nations. That word is, of course, his word, the scriptures. That word is the thing by which he judges over the nations. It says, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. There's this account of King Solomon. He's presented with a woman who comes and she brings a child and that child is in dispute. There's another woman who claims that this is my child. You have these two women. Now, some people accuse Solomon of doing something grotesque, but he's actually full of wisdom. And he says, okay, you each want half of the baby. And he then says, bring me a sword. And at this moment, the true heart of the two mothers or two proposed mothers is revealed. One of them says, okay. And one of them says, no, let her have it. Solomon, through his wisdom, through the wielding of his sword, is able to discern which one of them is righteous, that is, which one of them is the mother, and which one of them is evil. That is a picture of the word of Christ. That is, Christ's word, which is deemed to be and called a a sword, either delivers one to salvation or condemns one. The Puritans had this saying and understanding that as people come to church, as people sit through sermons, if they do not take heed to the word that they are hearing, that that word is like a sword, either pushing someone closer to Christ, showing them their great need of Christ, or through their own sin is hardening them over time. This is what it means to understand the scripture as a sword. See, we spiritualize things so often. We think, oh, well, the sword is you know, for my defense, but the sword is supposed to cut you. It's supposed to reveal that which is of Christ and that which Christ still needs to root out. That continues to happen through the ministry of his word over time, over history. That is to say that Christ's rule, which he has established now, which, is, which he is doing now, is not a mystical rule. Some people have this idea that Christ does not uh, actually uh, do anything on, on the throne, that he's merely waiting until things become ripe enough to return. The opening of this phrase, he shall judge, uh, can also be faithfully rendered, it shall judge. And that it is a relative pronoun which refers back to explicitly the word which goes out. The word which goes out is the agent through which Christ rules the nation. He does not judge the people in some mystical, unknowable sense. Many Christians have this false understanding that they think, okay, Christ is on the throne, I'll accept that, and I'll, I'll understand that he's wielding history through his, uh, to bring about his intended purpose. But then they somewhat spiritualize the righteousness of God, and they think, well, God doesn't really bless or curse nations based on their adherence or lack of faithfulness to his word, but rather he has his, un, his own unknowable purpose. And we can't understand Christ's reign at all. It's mystical. It's unable to be understood. But the scriptures actually clearly show time and again that Christ either blesses or curses nations as they either accord to or do not hold to and repudiate his word. What does this mean? It means in Daniel 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this stone which comes and becomes large and fulfills the whole earth, that that stone being Christ, it's an image, the same parable or the same vision that Isaiah has. 
And the reason Christ is righteous to judge those empires which, Daniel, uh, which Nebuchadnezzar had seen was because they hated his rule. Each one of the empires, when you look throughout history, persecutes the nations around it, especially those who are the people of faith. This is exactly what my fear is for our country, is that we have such a great Christian witness, and yet there are things that we permit in our now empire of America that ought not to be permitted. The chief of those is abortion. The next one after that is probably the invasion of other countries for non-righteous wars. After this is probably the taxation of everyone to death. But I don't know, I mean, there's a few other things. The, the bribes that we take, the laws that we establish, the, the so-called legalization of so-called same-sex marriage, which the Supreme Court cannot make any laws in our constitutional system. Nevertheless, all the people, all the governors, all the presidents, all the congressmen are all going along with it. We are establishing iniquitous decrees and we are being judged by Christ. Many people think, oh, there is coming a day when we will pay for abortion. Brothers and sisters, we already are paying for abortion. We pay for abortion through the great apathy which has come on our people, not seeing it as an important thing. We pay for abortion in the fact that we are missing probably at least 100 million people. Now you say, well, the last time I heard it was 60 million. But it's been going on for 40 years, and each one of them would have had children most likely. So now you have to start counting not only the one who was murdered, but all their children who are missing. We are suffering under the weight of abortion. It is not just a judgment which is coming, which I believe may be in our, our future. Certainly will come on in the form of religious persecution at first and possibly military persecution. Whether it happens or not doesn't really matter. We're already paying for it. See, God's judgments are always happening. Now, in saying that, I am not saying that there isn't also a cataclysmic judgment. There is a judgment which comes on nations that comes in like a flood. But even if God does not send one of those for a hundred years on our nation, we already are suffering because we repudiate, throw off, and seek to remove his reign from our country. This is why Christians are prophetically against the country for the country. That is to say, your life as a Christian, living your life in this culture as a citizen, first of the kingdom of God and then a citizen of America, you have to live in such a way that recognizes that our country does not recognize his kingdom. So, Christ pronounces his words, and Christ not only decides disputes, but again, this phrase, deciding disputes, can also be rendered faithfully from the Hebrew as shall rebuke many. At the clear preaching of Christ's word, many nations stand condemned for their idolatry, greed, and murder. This is why God brought an end to the Roman Empire. And this is why God brings an end to empires, because they do not accord to his word. These will not remain forever. Probably the greatest moment in preaching that I've ever had was when I, I mean, I understand this, but I, I, I rejoice in it that abortion will end. It will either end by our removal of it and our repentance at the preaching of the gospel, or it will end with the judgment of our country in which God will spare the righteous and condemn the wicked, but abortion will end. Likewise, it's proved true over history and will do so in the future that as nations turn to Christ, they, according to verse 4, stop making war. One of my, one of my favorite stories, um, it, it's not a very common thing to talk about because it's not, it doesn't really fit the mode of much of the theory of the church today. But in the 900s, uh, the gospel comes into uh, Norway and the Scandinavian region, um, some of us are from there uh, through the hundreds of years. Um, but as the gospel comes into these people, these Viking kings become converted. And literally within a few years of their conversion, all of the Viking raidings and pillagings, the raping of people, the burning of houses, all of it ceases. 
if you want to um, read about that, he's a, a man by the name of Olag. Uh, just type in Olag and Christendom, and you'll, it's a wonderful story of ministers of the gospel risking their death, going into the Viking territories, preaching the gospel, and those kings, upon being converted, put an end to their war machine, and they learn a new way of living. This is absolutely taking place, and it is important to understand you cannot look at current events and judge the word by your current vision of history. You have to take the word at face value. He is judging between the nations. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So what must we do in response to this vision shown by Isaiah? The first thing that we must do is understand that the light of the Lord is not simply confessing your sins. Oftentimes in the church, when we say walk in the light, we spiritualize it into, well, I'm just going to be open with my sins to some pastors. But walking in the light of the Lord means living like these nations seek to live, to live according to the vision of Christ. The knowledge of his present rule, therefore, by which he moves forward history calls us to walk as Christ walked. You see, a vision that Christ is redeeming time allows you to sow your life into the earth, so to speak, like you would sow a seed. Christ says a seed does not bear fruit unless it goes into the earth and dies, and then it can sprout up and bear much fruit. So the first thing I would say is first we need to take courage. We need to take courage and we need to divorce ourselves from thinking that everything is going to get worse all the time and that God will not bless faithful obedience in culture, in art, in economics, in raising of children, in education, in the establishing of churches. God will bless those things. They will bear fruit. It is true that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That is true. But it is also true that God is building his house. Christ said, I will establish my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is an offensive term. That is, the, the church is militant. She has a mission. She is going somewhere. So forsake your, future, or your fears of the future and invest. I don't mean invest in stocks, although that might be smart. Invest. Invest in the kingdom. The second thing is take action. In Proverbs 8, we see Jesus presented in the imagery as the, uh, the, the notion of wisdom. That is, wisdom is personified. And wisdom, as it is personified, is speaking about Christ, in whom all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge are hid. He himself was with the Father at the beginning, and it says that he was with his Father as a master builder. So take action. Learn from Christ. Learn how to build. Learn how to sow, reap, build, plant. And by this, of course, I mean the spiritual sense. I'm okay if you want to learn real carpentry, physical carpentry, but I'm more interested that you would become eager to learn spiritual carpentry, that you would, like, that you would liken unto Paul to become a master builder. What does that mean? It means to study the scriptures and to bring them to bear in all aspects of life. This is what it means to eagerly wait for the, the return of Christ. What happens in the Gospels? The one who sows his talent in the ground is the one who is judged as unfaithful. The one who invests his talents is the one who is faithful. And then finally, renew your mind. Just because the end of the story is clear, you cannot become apathetic about your own involvement. This is the greatest danger of a victorious eschatology, the greatest danger of what you might call a post-millennial hope, is that in hearing a message like this, you think, well, it's all going to work out. I'm good. I don't need to read the scriptures. I don't need to become one who goes out and preaches the gospel. I don't need to learn how to exhort and encourage my fellow brothers and sisters. Nothing could be further from the truth. If the vision of God is this great, then that means we need all hands on deck. If you were here in the first, first part of today's service in, during the Bible study hour, I would, I would encourage, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen to that message again. But one of the great aspects of that message was just the, the vision of getting involved, becoming one who is able to restore your brothers through the activity of Christ. The only faith-filled response upon hearing the promised victory of the kingdom, the only faith-filled response 
throughout time is the wholesale abandonment of the cause of the gospel. That is to say, at the end of your life, not only will you die and take nothing with you, but what's more important is what you don't take with you than what you think you can take with you. You shouldn't be so afraid of dying that you are fearful to you know, actually leave stuff behind, but rather you should be so encouraged by the victory of Christ is how many churches can I establish? How many children can I have and faithfully raise them to be kingdom builders? How many people can I encourage and exhort and, and witness to about the reality of Christ? That should be your motivation, not your motivation of how will we survive the decay of, more, of America around us. Brothers and sisters, if your hands are to the plow, you won't even have to face what is coming. The people of, of Jerusalem, right before the surrounding of the city takes place, the surrounding of the city takes place. There's a prophecy that's given. The people, the armies which are surrounding the city of Jerusalem, all leave. And a prophecy comes to the Christians. And God tells his people to leave the city. As soon as they get done leaving, like a year later, the city is surrounded again. And is finally condemned and judged. The reason I say that is so many Christians, because they have activity of the Spirit going on in their heart, they rightly understand that our country is in a dire position and they fear for their own safety, and yet they don't understand that God always delivers his righteous. Even when Jericho was surrounded, God spared Rahab. Do not think for a second that you ought not pursue the kingdom because you're seeking to kind of batten down the hatches and brace the, the gates so as to not be overrun by the American iniquity. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would deliver us from a low view of your spirit and his effectiveness, that you would deliver us from a low view of the preaching of the gospel and the effectual call of the gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the vision that Isaiah has where he sees the mountain of the house of the Lord as having been established and the nations coming and streaming to it. We ask you, Lord, that you would be pleased to send us out, that just as your disciples left Jerusalem at, at a time, that you likewise would allow us to go out and preach your word. We ask you, Lord, that our, our lives would be in accordance not only with your, this vision of the future, but with your ways, that we would be intimately acquainted to them and that we would bring everything in subjection to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.